Let me ask you now, if you will, to open your Bibles to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. There will be two readings, Acts chapter 10, 9 through 16, and then Galatians 2, 11 through 16. So today we're going to talk about the sin of racism, and our point being, how does the gospel deal with this particular sin. When I was uh, a young father, or my daughters were younger, they watched a movie in which the great theologian Pee Wee Herman used to say to people who called him a name, I know you are, but what am I? And of course they would repeat, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? And my girls did that all the time. I know you are, but what am I? And then finally, Pee Wee Herman says, I know you are, but what am I? Infinity, as if that was to end it. We hear a lot of name-calling, especially given the topic we're considering today, racism. And while I think there is certainly valid grounds for concern for that, I would like to more biblically, theologically ground our understanding in what the Bible has to say about this particular sin not only that it is a sin, but how the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ can deliver us from those attitudes. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 10 of Acts and verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry. And he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the, second, and the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now if you would turn to the book of Galatians. Chapter 2. And let's begin reading in verse 11. Now, when the text here mentions Cephas, Cephas is the Greek version of, of Peter. So it's speaking of Peter. And uh, uh, let's start up in verse 7 and read a little more of this so we can get some context. Verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, 
because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we know that though we love you and we're here to worship you, there is just a built-in resistance sometimes to hearing your truth. And we pray that the Holy Spirit, who indwells those of us who believe, would take the Word of God and work deeply in our hearts today. That you might expose things we've never seen that need to be transformed and changed. That you might show us the beauty of the truth and give us an understanding of just how much we're loved and accepted in Jesus that will free us to hear the truth and be responsive to it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm sure that you, like me, can't read the news, you can't scroll through Twitter, you can't even browse a bookstore, you probably can't even talk to a neighbor or a coworker without realizing that somehow everything has become about race, gender, and even identity. In a very short period of time, we've been introduced to a whole new vocabulary that conveys a whole new set of ideas. We've been told that language can be violent, that it's a power play, uh, that the sciences need to be decolonized. We've been told that there's no such thing as biological sex and that uh, white people are intrinsically racist. We've been told that gender is fluid and that embracing obesity is healthy. Such ideas have very quickly become fixed in pop culture and almost received as infallible, unassailable truth. So that the strongest of labels must be assigned to those who dissent in the least way, they will be called what? Transphobic, bigots, haters, racist, and white supremacists. Now, with our friends, we agree that racism is a sin. And biblically, sin is anything that falls short of God's will and God's glory and anything that violates His law or His character. And there are at least four ways in which we will be calling racism, uh, or what we're calling racism, is a violation of God's glory 
and therefore is a sin. It is a sin. Racism is a sin because all of us are the image of God. It is a sin to violate, in thought, word, or deed, the biblical truth that all human beings have equal dignity and worth as persons created in the image of God. We all are God's image, though marred by the fall, but we still retain that dignity and worth as people created by uh, God himself. And because of that, uh, that can be violated. James chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that to even curse another human being um, is to address them without respect violates the image of God. When Jesus explains you shall not murder in Matthew 5 21, he says that if you treat somebody with contempt, calling him or her raka or fool, you violate the principle of the command and are in danger of the fires of hell. To modern ears, this seems a bit excessive, of course, but behind the sixth commandment is the doctrine of the image of God as expounded in James chapter 3. It is a sin to treat any class or group unequally or as being less worthy of respect, love, and protection. Treating people unequally on the basis of race is only one version of that sin, though it is a particularly pre prevalent, grievous, and pernicious one. To presuppose that one's own na race or nationality is inherently superior to another and to treat other races and nationalities with either unfairness, unequal justice, dismissiveness, or active contempt is a sin. And so God's law is based upon his character, and we know that God is no respecter of persons. The second reason I believe that racism is a sin, biblically speaking, is because of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus summed up the laws of God into two great commandments, and the second, which is not lesser than the first, is to love our neighbor as we do ourselves. When Jesus is asked to define the love of the neighbor, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, who at great risk and sacrifice meets the needs of a man of a very different race and religion from himself. Jesus says, go thou and do likewise. And Jesus tells us that we must treat people of other races, nationalities, and classes with the same amount of care and respect and love that we would give either to ourselves or to members of our own communities. Now, if just everybody would do that, we'd be in a much better place. The third thing that I want to bring to your attention, racism is a sin because of the new creation. At the end of Galatians, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Circumcision and uncircumcision is a metaphor for racial and ethnic differences. And what Paul, and when Paul says these distinctions mean nothing, he's not speaking absolutely elsewhere. He points to his own love and pride in his Jewish heritage, in Romans 9 in particular. But what he means is that such racial and cultural distinctions are nothing in comparison to the new creation. And what is that? 
Well, the new creation is the renewal of the material world, wiped clean of all death, suffering, tears, war, injustice, sin, and shame. It will be established at the end of the time, but the part of the good news of the gospel and the kingdom is that it has penetrated into the presence. This new creation has been brought forward, as, as it were, into the present. And therefore, we live in the already of the future transformation that will ultimately issue in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I could preach a sermon on all three of the things I just mentioned. But when I want to focus on dealing with racism, especially among the group that is listening to me, I wanted to focus on the fourth reason that I think it's important, and that is racism is a sin because of the, the gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Now you knew this is where I was going to end up. Uh, when you walked in the door but please hear me out because I think you're going to see that only the gospel gives us the resources and the frame of heart necessary to overcome the racist bents of our own heart and culture and so we need to do that uh, Richard Lovelace talked about how the gospel uh, helps us in a great deal he says when you rely on your own achievements or pedigree or behavior more than the justifying work of Christ for your sense of significance and security it makes you a radically insecure person and I would say a racist is a radically insecure person we need to bolster our sense that we're really good lovable worthy people because at the deepest level we already know we're not that insecurity shows itself in a variety of forms, uh, a, a smugness, an arrogance, a pride, or self-hatred and shame, or a defensive criticism of others. One bitter and common fruit from this failure to grasp salvation by grace alone through uh, trusting in Christ alone is to, is to make your art, heart's operating principle uh, other than grace it's racism. Here's what Lovelace says, and he's one of my favorite authors, by the way. He says this, they come naturally, people who don't get the gospel, come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They fix upon their race their membership in a party, and their culture as a means of self-recommendation. That is what makes me okay and good. The culture is put on as though it were armor against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed except through comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. For most people then, race and culture are a kind of self-righteousness. We think of ourselves as the good ones, not like those people over there. By the way, this, there's a new term out called othering, where you other everybody else. You know, you're the deplorable, you're the unwashed, you're the great unclean. But I'm on this side of the line over here, and uh, I am othering you because you're not worthy. You know, I watched a little bit of Wayne's World yesterday. I thought, 
when they met Alice Cooper and they got on their knees and said, you're not worthy, we're not worthy. And I thought, well, I don't know how that's going to pop up in the sermon, but it did. Uh, this means that we try to make our cultural preferences, which are no more than that, just merely preferences, uh, preferences into moral absolutes and badges of honor. For example, so many of the ways we do things in church, how we express emotion, how we sing, how long the service is, how we talk to one another, are merely cultural preferences and not prescriptions from Scripture. And yet, without a deep grasp of grace, we become wedded to our cultural patterns as the right way to be a Christian. We secretly, sometimes not so secretly, despise people of races and cultures or even politics different from our own as a way to patch up a righteousness of our own and so what I want to do now is get us to Galatians and show us how Paul dealt with that in the heart of another apostle Peter Paul got all up in his face and had a come to Jesus meeting and moment with Peter because Peter needed it. So if you'll look now in Galatians, what I want us to do is to recognize that while there have been a number of things written that are helpful explaining that racism is a violation of the will of God, they do not do a good job explaining theologically why people are racist. They focus only on the attitude and behavior of racism, but they go no deeper than that. And that's like having a plant in your yard and you're constantly lopping off the limbs, but the roots are growing stronger. We got a kumquat bush in our backyard that we literally butchered because it wasn't doing anything and it was too big for the pot. And uh, Pam was out there whacking on it. I said, what are you doing? Is that uh, planticide or something? Are you... And she said, no, I'm just disappointed with it. It doesn't have one kumquat. So she sticks it in the back of the garden, put plants it in, and that thing is going nuts. It's growing like crazy. Why? Because you never got to the roots. We didn't kill the root ball. And so it's growing. So a lot of what people uh, are saying we need to do, you, you can't make a person not be a racist by shaming them. You can't make a person not be a racist by rebuking them. You can't make a person not... You've got to get into the heart and the root of the matter. And that is exactly what Paul does when he confronts Peter. So let's go there. As we look in verse 12, why did Peter originally begin eating with the Gentiles? And Peter began eating with the Gentiles because God gave him the sheep vision in which he showed him that no one is unclean in Christ. And we know from last week that the clean, clean and unclean laws were a complicated series of regulations for worshipers to follow if they wanted to be ceremonially clean and acceptable for the presence of God in worship. People could not draw near to God if they ate certain unclean foods or if they had touched dead things or if they had disease, a disease or touched someone who did. And so the ceremonial law was God's teaching method to communicate to his people the idea that sinful people cannot just cavalierly and casually rush into the presence of God without being cleansed. 
Despite Jesus' allusion to the obsolescence of ceremonial laws, in Matthew 15 in particular, God sent Peter a vision to show him why the law was finished. He saw it. He saw the uh, a sheet full of animals forbidden, and he heard a voice say, kill and eat it. And then God says, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Immediately after that, Peter meets a repentant Gentile by the name of Cornelius who receives Christ. He's born again. Then Peter realizes that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him. Now, Peter was good. He was participating. He stayed in the home of Simon the Tanner, a Gentile, around dead stuff all the time. He, he ate and went into the home of Cornelius. His whole life had changed, which was remarkable. What led him to stop? When Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, it was not just cowardice, but Paul calls it hypocrisy. Peter could not have forgotten something as powerful and momentous and repetitive as the vision at Joppa of the sheet and the animals. And uh, he didn't really change his mind or convictions. If you had asked him, he still believed the gospel that we are clean through Jesus alone, but he didn't act in accord with his deepest understanding of his own convictions. What led Peter to act as he did? Well, he tells us in verse 12, he was afraid. Perhaps he was simply afraid of being criticized by the mother church back in Jerusalem, who was still trying to get Gentiles to become a Jew in order to fully understand the gospel and add to it all of the ceremonial law. But in addition, certainly racial pride must have entered into it because Peter, as all the Jews, had been from the crib drilled that with, the tr with the understanding that Gentiles were unclean. And while hiding beneath the facade of religious observance, Peter and other Jewish Christians were probably feeling disdain for Christians from inferior national and racial backgrounds. Peter was allowing cultural differences to become more important than gospel unity. Now, what do you think Paul meant when he said that Peter was not acting in line or in step with the gospel. Literally, he was not ortho walking with the gospel. You know the word ortho means straight. Think of an orthodontist. Why in the world would you go to an orthodontist? A lot of pain. But why would you go? Because your teeth are crooked and you want to get them straight. And so what Paul is saying is, Peter, you're out of step. You're out of alignment with the reality of the gospel because believing the gospel has certain implications. And so, he tells us that the gospel is truth. It's a message. It's a set of truth claims. It includes the fact that we're all weak and sinful, that we seek to control our lives by our own self-salvation strategies, where we act as our own saviors and Lord, but that God's law was fulfilled by Christ for us and we're accepted completely through him, even though we're still very sinful and flawed. That means, second, that the gospel truth has a vast number of implications for all of life. Every pathology you see in the church, 
and in other Christians is a failure to live in step with the reality of the gospel. Everyone. And so here, racism is no different as we see it practiced by Peter. And so, we are called, part of sanctification, is to think out the implications of the gospel in every area of our lives and to seek to bring our thinking, feeling, and behavior in line. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't do that, you'll just be another version of the culture that surrounds you. This I am talking about is deep root heart change and transformation. And it goes beneath the surface to the very deepest desires, disordered desires, of the fallen heart. As God begins to expose more and more through the truth and the Spirit our need for repentance. The gospel truth is radically opposed to the assumptions of the world. When I read, and I have been reading, some of the stuff on critical race theory and social justice, and I've been reading uh, other stuff like the book White Fragility. I haven't read it, but I've read a fair review of it. What I am seeing is the world's, and I knew this already, and so do you, the world's assumptions and presuppositions are not in alignment with the Bible much less the gospel. And so while I value the attempt to try to address some of the problems, I cannot help but see the flaws of the argument and uh, usually end up at the place of saying, that ain't going to work. And it doesn't. Now, why was Peter being partially hypocritical in his attitude toward the Gentiles? Well, Paul says to Peter, he lives like a Gentile in verse 14. It is unlikely that this means that Peter had simply thrown off all Jewish customs, diet, dress, and other stuff. Actually, there's no need for anyone who becomes a Christian to completely abandon his or her culture. But this must mean that Peter had at least become more sporadic in his observance of Jewish food laws and their observances and why would that be? He had realized that the food and dress laws were only cultural Jewish customs. That's what the word Judaizing is all about. The gospel demoted Peter's cultural customs in his mind and heart. And so this change had happened to Peter. But Paul says, we who are Jews, not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, verse 15, while he still may have seen these behaviors, as wise with his mind and deeply satisfying and familiar to his emotions, he, would, he now would have known that they weren't the basis of his relationship with God. And that necessarily would have made the observance of them uh, less a matter of great pride, look how good I am, or great fear if I don't keep him, I'm lost. But his natural and cultural distinctions would have ceased to have the same amount of moral and spiritual significance. Nevertheless, now Peter is insisting that Gentile Christians adopt culturally foreign customs and live like Jews. He was forcing them to take on the very customs that he had been liberated from. And despite the fact that he had personally become less culturally bound and uh, limited, he was refusing the Gentiles the same cultural freedom that comes with the gospel of justification through Christ alone. Okay, now, 
Let's make some application of this truth. How can we make the same kind of mistake that Peter did? How can we focus on non-essentials? How can we fail to eat with other Christians? Peter's sin was basically the sin of nationalism. He insists that Christians can't really be pleasing to God unless they become Jewish, but nationalism is just one form of legalism. We all know that legalism is looking to something besides Jesus in order to be acceptable and clean before God. And we do it all the time, every one of us, if we're honest. We find ourselves falling into that. And legalism always has fruit. It results in fear and pride psychologically and exclusion and strife socially. Now, there are a bunch of examples in our culture today that we could point to uh, uh, that are based on a lack of orientation to justification by faith, but I want to give a few today as it has to do with the church. The first one is what I would call sectarianism or being sectarian. Every Christian group or denomination naturally has distinctions of belief and practice that has less to do with core gospel beliefs and more to do with specific convictions about the ethical behavior of church or church policy. It is extremely easy to so stress our distinctions in order to demonstrate to ourselves and others that our church is superior or the best one. I have run into this ever since I've been in the Reformed Church, and I came outside of a denomination that had that problem, and I entered into the Reformed Church, and I said to myself, well, I finally found it, Xanadu. I'm here. This is great. Until I began to notice in myself and others a sort of Reformed chauvinism. Do you know what a Reformed chauvinism is? It's the idea that, come on, come on. We're really, we're really a little bit smarter than everybody else. We're a little bit more theologically astute. We're, 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 we, we capture the whole vision of God. We, we, we are the ones who live to worship Him. And that just stinks in the nostrils of God. Who in the world do we think we are to think that way about anybody else? And it's so easy. I call it being truly reformed. A TR in which, you know, they keep fine-tuning each other out of the picture to where eventually if you get into that system of fine-tuning each other out of the picture, your church could meet in a phone booth, and if you keep going, it'll meet under your own hat. Another way we do it is to bring classist, nationalistic, or racist attitudes from the world into the church. Many Christians belong to classist groups or even personality types that we had always disdained in our lives outside of the church before. For example, if I'm a working class Christian, I may have a distaste for Christians who are wealthy or from more socially refined backgrounds, and vice versa. Christians from one political persuasion may be upset by the presence of those from the other end of the spectrum. 
Very talented Christians may feel unhappy that people they have always considered just mediocre are part of the church. Socially polished Christians feel uncomfortable around believers who are socially awkward and marginal, and again, vice versa. It works both ways. The knife slices both ways. If we have fairly strong ties to a particular ethnic group, WASP, White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Hispanic, Asian, African American, we may feel uncomfortable around people whose cultural emphases are quite different. We may respond to this like Peter did. We will sit by those people in church, but we ain't eating with them. In other words, we won't really become good friends with them. We won't socialize with them. We won't share our lives and our homes and things with them. We want to keep the relationship formal. We want it to be arm's length, as it were. And because of that, it's a serious, serious lapse. We won't socialize with them. We won't share with them. We'll keep the relationship formal and see them at official church meetings only. But again, it stems from a general feeling of superiority. Our hearts, without the gospel, have to, absolutely have to, manufacture self-esteem by comparing our group with other groups. But the gospel tells us we're all unclean without Christ. And we're all clean in him. Now, I'm not saying you can't have particular political stances and whatever else. But you've got to relativize that in the, in the midst of understanding, what are you? A Republican or a Christian? What are you? A Democrat or a Christian? What are you first? And so what I'm calling us to do, and what the Bible's calling us to do, is to relativize those distinctions, and yet at the same time recognize we're all the unclean. And without Christ's cleansing, none of us have anything to say. In the ancient Near East, the sharing of a meal was much more than just a common thing, and it held much more significance than it does today. To sup with someone is a metaphor for intimacy. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, If anyone uh, stands at the door and knocks, uh, I will open the door and he can come in and sup with me. That's a description of intimacy, of sitting down with the person. And uh, to refuse a meal was an act of personal rejection. It was a failure to treat someone as an equal. Equal For Christians, eating together has additional significance. Jesus had adopted the custom of fellowship supping and raised it to a new level when he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper it was a common meal that Christians were to renew intimacy with God and each other, and it represents our equality before Christ. As I always or often say, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There are no hierarchies there. And lastly, the most subtle way to lapse into Peter's sin is simply to take our own preferences too seriously and endow with moral significance what is really only cultural. For example, it is hard from Christians, for Christians from churches who are hip-hop and happening and have great emotional expressive, great singing in their worship, amazing music, and just really... Uh, 
going on not to feel superior to churches with emotional reserve and classical music and vice versa. Uh, we cannot see that we're just different. We believe that style and customs are spiritually better. And that leads to all kinds of divisions in the body of Christ. Now, how is racism and nationalism not in line with the gospel? And what difference does it make that Paul takes the approach he takes with Peter rather than simply saying, Peter, you're wrong, repent, you heathen. No, how was it not in line with the gospel? And so Paul's basic argument to Peter is this. God did not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and your culture. Though you were good and devout, your race and customs did not have a single thing to do with it. Put another way, you know that the Jewish customs uh, have no spiritual significance for you, so how can you treat Gentiles as if they have spiritual significance for them? So what difference does it make? The difference intellectually, Paul's analysis of racism is extremely significant and unique here. He doesn't simply say that racism is sin, which we know it is, but he uses the gospel to show us the spiritual roots of racism. Without this knowledge, we can't really do anything about it. Paul says the roots of racism are a resistance to the gospel of salvation. In other words, racism is a continuation of works righteousness in one part of our lives. It is the failure to bring our relationships with other cultures in line with grace salvation. Racism arises because our hearts still oppose grace and seek to find ways of self-justification. We try to come up with and devise ways to feel superior to others, to feel cleaner than others. And one of the ways we do that is by making our culture an idol. Extreme cases of this results in militarism and fascism. But to some degree, all of us try to use our culture and race to feel superior to others. Now, let me make just a quick application here. If you are a member of a racial majority, your race's cultural pride is fairly easy to see. If you're a member of a racial minority, then it's often put down uh, discernment of justification through racial pride is a bit more complex. But it surfaces when you begin to think, I'm more noble than you, I'm better than you, uh, I'm better than the dominant race. I've suffered more. I'm not an oppressor like you. Therefore, I'm a good person, and you're not. Now, I want to call attention, and then we'll be done. I want to call attention to how Paul dress, addresses Peter here, because it's very important, very, very important. Paul did not simply say, repent of the sin of racism but repent of the sin of forgetting the gospel and grace. You're welcome in Christ. Paul doesn't focus so much on the behavior sin as he does the root of self-righteousness underneath it. And i got to tell you, that's all it is. That's all it is. 
the nature of sin is always attend, attempting to construct and find a righteousness outside of Christ. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is the way that I learn to think of myself as a worthy, acceptable, good, honorable, esteemed person. And the only thing that can give me that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And every other avenue is self-righteousness, and it's destined to destroy you and cultures. And so, that was how he dealt with him. It's a different way of opposing someone when you're trying to motivate people by urging them to see their riches and love in Christ then you're personally are pointing to their value and dignity as you appeal to them. To scream at people and shame people and to try to humiliate and embarrass people and use force never accomplishes that. Ever. Never, ever. Never. And so, when we use God's grace as a motivator, we can criticize sharply, directly, but the other person will generally be able to perceive that we are for him and not against him. Now, Peter's pride was grounded in fear. He was afraid. And when our sin is rooted in fear, we need to be loved and strengthened in order to get the courage to do right in spite of our fear. Not only was Peter's racism out of line with the gospel, but his cowardice was too. If he's justified in God's eyes, why does he need to be justified in Jerusalem's eyes? But then Paul, when Paul said your racism is a violation of the grace and mercy of God to you, he was also addressing Peter's fear, and he says, you've forgotten Christ's love for you, Peter. You've forgotten it. So, If we're going to see the reality of dealing with racism, let me say this, that the gospel is the only thing in the universe that gives you the emotional, spiritual cachet of courage to be able to face the ugliness of your own heart. Otherwise, it's just suicide. It's emotional suicide. It's, it's psychological suicide. You can't go there. You can't admit it. You can't face up to it. And I realize that as I've been immersed in this the whole week, I've seen things in me I don't like. I've seen some attitudes that need repentance. God has been at work in me. Why? Because once you're sitting in the arms of Jesus completely loved and embraced, never to be forsaken, uh, as righteous in God's eyes as He is, then you realize you're not going to lose your salvation if you admit what's really wrong with you. You're not terrified to see the ugliness, and you're more ready to repent. And that is exactly what the gospel does. It is the only thing that causes us not to be defensive, not to be critical of others, not to shame others, but it gives us the courage for authenticity, to be real, as it were, in the presence of the living God. So, if you see that in your own heart, repent, run to Jesus, live out of the resources of the gospel. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word today. Uh, we thank you for speaking to us. We know that we are a people who like to justify ourselves, and we like to other other people. We like to choose a group of people to define ourselves against by despising them as inferior to you. And we thank you, Lord, that there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared, and that we can come to you and see you work in us, which gives us a heart to want to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.